You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. And let's read God's Word, Matthew chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse number 3. The Bible says, And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, why did then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You may be seated. We've read that text about six or seven times, and I'm hoping that by the end of this sermon series, you'll have that thing memorized. But what we're talking about this morning is we're going to talk about the big D, and I'm not talking about Dallas. We're going to be talking about divorce. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but in the past couple of weeks, some major news has happened in the world, and that is, is that Bill and Melinda Gates are getting a divorce after 27 years of marriage. A recent article in the Guardian magazine and the Guardian newspaper in England said that if Bill and Melinda Gates can't make a marriage work, what hope is there for the rest of us? The article goes on and says that if the world's richest couple who owns more houses than most people do shoes, more farmland than any other private landowner in the United States and have a jet plane, cannot stay married, then what about the rest of us? As a matter of fact, there's a trend going on in America called the gray trend in divorce in which people that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even 70s are divorcing. As a matter of fact, since 1990, the people that are getting divorced age 50 and above have tripled. Psychologists say that uh, with a longer life expectancy, people are not just drifting apart, but they want to chart an entirely new life with the time that they have left. In America, the average length of marriage is eight years. Now, I have, over the years, married quite a few couples. Even as a matter of fact, yesterday we had a, a small wedding ceremony uh, here at the church, just a very small one. I've never married a couple while in premarital counseling they've said, you know what, we just want to get married so we can get divorced. <laughs> uh, that's never a good way to start a marriage, right? Some of you have gone through the pain of divorce. One particular gentleman a few years ago told me, he said it was the worst pain ever. It was more painful than the death of a spouse, he says in death, as a matter of fact, he had lost his wife to death, and then he married someone and divorced her. So he said in death, the other person leaves you, but in divorce, they reject you. Sadly, I've seen too many couples want to get a divorce, and before they get the divorce, before they start the process of divorce, they always come and see me. I found that a lot of people don't want to come see the preacher until it's too late. And honestly, I think a lot of times it's just to soften their conscience before they go see their divorce attorneys. And maybe this morning you're heading into a divorce. Maybe even this week you and your wife have spoken about getting a divorce. Or maybe you are in a marriage and your marriage is struggling this morning. Or maybe you have been divorced and you are remarried and you're wondering, have I made a mistake in remarrying? 
Some of you may be single. As a matter of fact, I spoke to someone just this week and they're single, but they're in the process of getting married and they're concerned about, I don't want to follow the pattern that I saw in my parents and I don't want to be divorced just like they were. And some of you this morning, you are just really struggling. If this is the case, Jesus has a word for you this morning. As we've been going throughout this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 19 for the past few weeks, we saw that Jesus has been answering the questions that were brought to him by the religious establishment. And the, the questions that they asked Jesus was about divorce and remarriage. And what they wanted is they wanted to trap Jesus, but Jesus wanted to teach them. And Jesus is going to teach what God's design is for humanity, for gender, for sexuality, for singleness. And today we're going to talk about his design for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And what we hope to learn this morning is this is that de- Jesus teaches that divorce is always painful, but it does not have to be inevitable. Divorce is always painful, but it does not have to be inevitable. Let's look at three things here. Number one, I want you to look at the question about divorce. Finally, we get to kind of walk through this text and, and, and what the real question that is asked of Jesus. In verse number three, they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, Jesus is going to give a response, and he gives this response in rooting and rooting and grounding his response in what Genesis says in Genesis 1 and 2 in God's original design. And what we've learned over these past few weeks is that God has a particular view of marriage. There's God's view of marriage, and then there's the culture's view of marriage. In God's view of marriage, he has the people in, in mind that God created marriage to be the union between one man and one woman in a committed covenant relationship to, with each other for one lifetime. People have always asked, what does Jesus have to say about same-sex marriage? Well, Jesus is pretty clear. It's one man, one woman, and nothing else. God's view of marriage also has the purpose. The purpose of marriage is the union or the fusion of two becoming one by God. And so what marriage does is it takes the I out of us. The third thing we see about God's view of marriage is the priority that the man and the woman are to leave all other relationships and cleave to their spouse. In verse number six, Jesus goes on to say this, that what God has joined together, let not man separate. That here you have that God designed marriage to be a covenant relationship. And why is it so important that, these, that this covenant relationship should not be broken here on earth? It, it was to demonstrate God's overwhelming, never-ending, undying, and unbreakable love for his people. So Jesus says here that divorce should not be an option. Now, if you know the Old Testament passage in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. So if you are married, according to Jesus, God has joined you together. Think about that. You may say, well, it was my decision, but God has joined you together. Don't mess with it. So that's Jesus on marriage. But then verse number seven comes in, and the Pharisees then say, all right, in their mind, this is the gotcha moment. Okay, Jesus, you just said that God had this, he has the people, he has the purpose, he has the priority, he has this picture of God's undying, unending, unbreakable love. What about what Moses says about this thing? In verse number seven, it says, they say this, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Why then does it seem like that Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 7 say this, that when a man takes a wife and marries her and if, and if she finds no favor in his eyes because, of some, uh, uh, because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out the house. Why is it then, Jesus, 
that if you say that divorce is never a part of God's original design, why does it seem here in Deuteronomy 24 that God commands it or gives that opportunity? So are you saying, Jesus, that you are smarter and greater than the greatest prophet ever? (laughs) Are you contradicting Moses? Well, let me just give you some advice. Never get into a battle of wits with Jesus. Just tell you that right now. So Jesus has a response in verse number eight. He says, the reason why this is in the law, the reason why this is said by Moses is because of the hardness of your heart. It is because you are a sinful person. It is because you are not spiritually mature. It wasn't God's design for divorce, but yet God allowed it. It wasn't in the original design. Remember, Jesus understands and knows something that maybe the Pharisees don't understand. God created marriage before he created anything else or before any other institution like the state, but God created marriage even before sin entered into the world. And so in God's original design, divorce was never on the table. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day taught something, and they taught something that these Pharisees should have known, and they taught that there's a difference between a command in the law and a concession from the law. A command in the law expressed God's explicit desire and his heart on a topic. So when God says, you shall, not, uh, you shall not lie, that's God's explicit desire that you should not tell somebody something that's not true. That's a command. A concession is something that God allowed in, soci- in the society of fallen people in order to keep peace in the society that was filled with people from different spiritual maturity levels. And so what you have here is not a command. Moses didn't command anybody to get a divorce. Moses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave a concession, an allowance of divorce. Now, I want you to understand that an allowance for divorce is not a command to divorce. It's a concession. In an unfallen world, marriage was to be forever. Because in an unfallen world, there is no sin and there is no death. But in a fallen world, marriage doesn't last forever, either because of death or because of divorce. And so God made a concession for divorce because of a broken, sinful human heart. But in doing so, this concession was not him giving explicit permission, nor is it God condoning it. The heart of the question that the Pharisees ask, you're probably thinking in your mind, whether you're married or whether you're divorced or whether you're thinking about divorce or whether you're single, the heart of the question in this text is what are the biblical causes for divorce? The word here, divorce, in vat debar, is the word there in the Hebrew. And what, you, what you're going to note, if you kind of listen to what the question is from these Pharisees, is in this day, divorce was a hot topic issue. Just like in our day, transgenderism is a hot topic issue and and, and, and other type of uh, sexual issues uh, and relationships, a same-sex marriage would be another one. Well, in this day, the Jews really were very fascinated and had a lot of different thoughts when it came to divorce and when it came to this issue of adultery. These were good Jewish men, and so they didn't want to commit adultery. They didn't want to break one of the Ten Commandments. But they also uh, didn't necessarily want to be stay, they didn't necessarily want to stay married to the same woman all their lives. And so they had a dilemma here. They didn't want to break the law, but they also didn't want to stay married. <laughs> and so what they were looking for was a loophole, 
right? And so they look at Deuteronomy 24 and they look at Moses' words of some indecency and they think, well, that's kind of an ambiguous word. And so what qualifies as indecency? And so you had two schools of thought. Now, some of you are like, what does this have to do? This is very important. This will bless your heart. And if you're ever on Bible Jeopardy, this will bless you even more. <laughs> you had two schools of thought. School number one was Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai taught that indecency, the word indecency found in Deuteronomy 24, was only sexually, was only a sexual indecency. That divorce and remarriage are only permitted if the spouse committed adultery or some form of sexual immorality. So the Rabbi Shammai opinion was the conservative Fox News, Newsmax, Southern Baptist Convention view, okay? Then you have Rabbi Hillel, who taught that indecency was anything that you don't like about your wife is indecent. So if she talked too much, if she was a bad cook, if she had bad breath in the morning, you could invite, devour her. You could divorce her. This was the progressive view of that day, and it was the popular opinion of Jesus' day. That was the, the popular opinion is, you know what? She burnt the beans, she's out. Now, this was a very male-driven world, okay? So the Pharisees, in asking Jesus this question, believed that Jesus would be in line with Rabbi Shammai, and they wanted to get Jesus on public record that he was a radical conservative, and they wanted him to be on record having an unpopular opinion because Jesus at this moment was at the very zenith of his popularity. They wanted Jesus to come out and be controversial and turn others against him so that they would cancel him. You know why? Because his cousin, John the Baptist, died because of his stance about divorce. So that's what the question of divorce is about. So then we're going to see what Jesus' answer is to answer their second question. That's just the concession for divorce. So Jesus, when he gives his concession, we don't necessarily, when we read this, we kind of glaze over it, but Jesus really comes out swinging. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus' response here is stronger than even Rabbi Shammai's. Jesus says, listen, you shouldn't get divorced, but if you do, if you get divorced for any other reason other than your spouse's sexual infidelity or immorality, then you're committing adultery if you remarry. Again, the heart of this is that these good Jewish men didn't want to commit adultery, so they wanted to find a loophole so that they didn't feel so bad about themselves. And here Jesus says, no, if, for, if you divorce your spouse for any other reason other than sexual immorality, then you're committing adultery. Now, I could go into a whole lot more here. One of the interesting things here is that in the other passages where Jesus speaks about this outside of the Gospel of Matthew, he doesn't give this exception. There's reasons for that. I wish I could go into it. Google it and pray for you. Why is it that Jesus says that? Because in God's eyes, when you are married, you're one flesh. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you lose who you are as an individual person made in the image of God, but it does mean that you are in a lifetime covenant with the other person. And because you're in a lifetime covenant, there are only a few exceptions 
for you to get out of that lifetime covenant. I mean, it's almost, it's, it, it's, it's, it's even more stringent than a timeshare. <laughs> so what are the biblical reasons for divorce? Well, I'm going to give you three. Number one, death. Death will kill the covenant. Once you're dead, you are released from your marriage covenant. This shouldn't be funny. You all have the problem. I'm fine up here. Two, adultery. Okay? Now, I'm going to inevitably have somebody in here. What's adultery? It's you having a sexual relationship with someone you're not married to. This is sexual immorality. This is the word porneia. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't use the word adultery. He could have used the word adultery. He uses the word porneia. So this is any kind of marital infidelity. Now, we've got to be careful with that because the word porneia can be used in different ways. And I do think this is an egregious form of, of sexual immorality. So it's not like Jesus is saying here that if you as a guy are on the beach and you are out looking and you see somebody and you lust in your eyes and you're committing porneia in that moment that your wife says, all right, it's over. No. But what you have to understand is that marital infidelity can kill the covenant. Because there's a lack of trust, and there's a hurt that's too hard to overcome. Now, we know that those are basically two that Jesus lays out in, verse, in chapter 19, right? Death, till death do his part, and adultery or sexual immorality. But then there's a third one, which is found in 1 Corinthians 7. And this is the Apostle Paul talking about the abandonment or desertion from an unbelieving spouse. He says that if your spouse is an unbeliever and you are a believer, and they don't want to stay married to you because you are a believer, then that can kill the covenant. But if they want to stay married to you, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to get out. Now, with these three, some people are going to ask, and many of you are going to ask, and maybe later on you're going to think about this, what about an abusive spouse? What about a spouse that's involved in illegal activities and they won't stop? Well, here's what I want you to understand, that if you or your family are in danger, get out. Get out of the situation, get out of the house immediately. Okay? Anyone who tells you you should just suck it up and take abuse has problems. If you are abused in any, in, in any fashion, get out of the house, call the police. Okay? Then call the church, and the church will be there for you. Okay? Do not say, I deserve this. Now, as far as divorce, there are some circumstances where abuse and certain situations are so destructive and so powerful that they may, in my opinion, fall within the boundaries of immorality and abandonment. But here's what you have to get from. Jesus is wanting us to learn, and what the Bible is trying to teach us is that divorce should be the last option, not the first option. I mean, divorce should be as radical to you as cutting off your leg. There are times in life where amputation is necessary to save your life, but spraining your ankle is not a reason to cut off your leg. Getting a hangnail is not a reason to cut off your hand, and getting an ingrown toenail is not a reason to cut off your foot. 
Therefore, it should not be, divorce should not be quick. It should not be easy over petty issues. Jesus does not affirm divorce over irreconcilable differences unless those irreconcilable differences are sexual immorality, death, or abandonment. So any divorce outside of those parameters is a sin against God. Now, again, I'm telling you that if you are in a situation of abuse or illegal activity, get out of the house, separate. If you decide to divorce, we'll counsel you, we'll help you through that, but you get out of that situation. But divorce is not God's best for your life. But listen, if you are here this morning and you are hearing this sermon, you're like, well, you know what? I was due for one. And you have divorced somebody for the wrong reasons and you've remarried. You have sinned against God. But what I'm going to tell you, stay married with the one you're with. Don't divorce again. Repent. Reconcile with your exes and make amends, and then live your life for Jesus. See, what Jesus wants to understand, wants us to understand what we shared about last time, is that marriage is not a consumer relationship. Marriage is not some social contract that says, I'll stay with you as long as it gives me what I want at a cost that's acceptable to me. Marriage is a covenant relationship, not a membership at Sam's Club. It is a relationship that is deeper and far more impacting than most any other relationships you'll have in your life. It's not something that you just get out of when you're not happy. I mean, it would be like me going to one of my kids and saying, you know what, son, daughter, you know, things have changed. This isn't working out for me. I mean, buddy, it's not you, it's me. You know, I, I've, I've been hanging around some of the neighbor's kids, and I kind of see that they're the kind of kids that I want, that I want to raise. And you know what? I want to be happier. And I think I would be happier with a different kid. You know, you cost me a lot of money, and and I've got to do what's best for me in my future. So I think that it's best right now that we just end our relationship so you won't be seeing me much anymore. And you don't have to call me dad anymore. I would never do that. Why? Because my relationship with my kids is not a consumer relationship. I love my kids. I would do anything for my kids. Except sin. But I'm not going to dissolve my relationship with them because they make me unhappy. As stringent and as loving as a parent-child relationship is, Jesus wants us to understand the husband and wife relationship should be even stronger than that. Dissolving a marriage because it's not working for you should never be an option. Now, there are times that divorce is on the table because of the extreme cases that I talked about. But just because something is optional doesn't mean you have to do it. And just because something is optional doesn't mean that you should do it. That if you are struggling in your marriage or someone has hurt you, you need to lean hard on your church family. You need to lean hard on leadership. You need to be involved in biblical, solid counseling. And you need to be spending time in prayer and asking God to give you much patience. Think about the vows you said. When you said your vows, did you say, till death do us part? 
Or did you say, till something else do us part? Did you say, till adultery do us part? Did you say, until I'm not happy anymore do us part? Or did you say, till I find something or someone better do us part? The concession that Jesus gives is in extreme situations, but it just because there's concession doesn't mean you have to do it. So that's the teaching here. That's what Jesus is saying here. Maybe that's hard for some of you, harsh for others. Maybe it's something you just say amen and you agree on because you're going through a good time. But here's what I want to end with. I want to give some practical application to people that are struggling in their marriage or even if you're not struggling in your marriage, I hope this is practical, or even if you're single and you're wanting to get married, this will be helpful for you. The first thing I want to say is the reason why all marriages struggle. Listen, I don't know, I don't care who you are. I've talked to a guy once, and he says that we've been married for years, and me and my wife have never had an argument. We've never had a problem. You know what I looked and said? You're not married. <laughs> right? And they're liars, okay? That's really what I wanted to say. I mean, I don't care. I mean, I know you have these visions that April and I are perfect, and I have permission to say what I'm about to say to all of you. We're not. And she will testify, I'm not. The problem in all marriages is that when a, when, when a husband and a wife get, get married, they're two sinners that say, I do. The problem in every marriage is you, and the problem in every marriage is me. And as a sinner, I can never meet the expectations of my spouse, and neither can they meet your expectations. You cannot meet their expectations intellectually, physically, uh, emotionally, sexually, or spiritually, and vice versa. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, but the greatest enemy in your marriage is you. Self-centeredness is the greatest enemy to marriage. See, sin makes us selfish, I want you to understand, you were selfish before you got married, but when you get, when you get married, it reveals how self-centered and how self-obsessed you are. Selfishness and self-centeredness cause us to see the other person's issues to be far worse than our own issues. Sin causes us to look at ourselves to be the better person and to justify our own flaws. So we tend to believe that we're not as bad as the person we married because we're selfish, we're self-absorbed. And what happens is, I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. He says, people get the idea from books that if you've married the right person, you may go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find out that they're not, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realizing that, when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out the old love. The problem is, it doesn't matter who you, you can marry a hundred people. The problem's still going to be the same. You. And so, when you and I make marriage about our happiness, about our self-fulfillment, that's the culture's view of Marriage. God never did say in the Bible that I want, I, made, I want you to be married so that you can be 100% happy. That's not what he says. You can be happy and married. And we're going to talk about that next week, how to be happy and married. But God's view of marriage is different than the culture's view of marriage. God's view of marriage is different than Hollywood's view of marriage. And if you have marriage to ultimately be about you and your own satisfaction and your own happiness, that's going to be problematic. 
And I pity the person that marries you. Duke professor, which it pains me to quote anybody from the University of Duke, <laughs> or Duke University, sorry, professor of ethics, Dr. Stanley Hauerwas said this. He said, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a critical aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Let that one sink in for a moment. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. All, again, this, these, this will be in the notes and you can access that online. See, what I have learned is that marriage changes you. It just does. Just like having kids changes you. Just like being ran over by a dump truck changes you. <laughs> I am not the same person that I was before I was married. I hope it's for the better, but sometimes it's for the worse. One author wrote that why should neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? Marriage is hard because we're sinners with unrealistic expectations and perceived unmet needs. But ultimately, marriage is hard because neither the person you married nor the person they are married to is God. I've shared with you, you cannot give God-sized needs to a human being and expect them to meet them. Only God can meet your God-sized needs. So if you put your God-sized needs on someone else other than God, then that person will be crushed and you'll be disappointed or vice versa. You know, a few weeks ago, I was having a discussion with my wife and she was bringing up some good points and I was bringing up some good points, and I felt like I needed to be defensive, and she kept bringing up some more good points. And she continued to share some thoughts that she had about things. And, and I just, in the flesh, burying my soul right now, I was frustrated. I was upset. And, and in my heart, I said this, I don't know what to do. I am not God. And I didn't say that on the outside. But it's the truth. I'm not God. Husbands, you're not God. Wives, you're not God. And you know what it means to not be God? Let me just tell you what it means to not be God. Number one, the world doesn't revolve around you. Right? The world revolves around God, but not you. You're not God. Neither is she or he. Number two, I don't know everything. Right? Like, when it comes to parenting, I was just telling my wife this the other day. And again, I have permission to share everything that I'm sharing, okay? I was telling her this the other day. I don't know how to parent. This is the first time I've ever done it. I just think we just keep looking to Jesus and keep trying. I'm not God. I don't know everything. And here's the third thing. I can't fix everything. 
So God, the world doesn't revolve around me. I don't know everything and I can't fix everything. And if you start thinking that you, the world does revolve around you and that you know everything and that you can fix everything, you're going to be miserable to live with. So understand that when you got married, you married a sinful person. And when they married you, they married a sinful person. And here's the thing. Two bad eggs don't make a good omelet. We need resources outside of ourselves to empower us to stay committed, faithful, and engaged in our marriage. We need a resource to love and to forgive and to repent. We need strength to be patient, kind, tender, gentle, and comforting. Where can we find that strength? Only in Jesus. And that's why you should never marry an unbeliever. Because they're not going to see the world the way you do. The only place to find resources for your hurting marriage is found in God, is found in Jesus. And I love what Gary Thomas said. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, another great book, said this. He says, couples do not fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. Leave that up there. They do not falter in their passion for each other. They falter in their worship of God. They live for themselves and they get their eyes off of God. You want to know your biggest problem in marriage is you and, the, and, and a part of that is you've got your eyes on you and not on him. Couples do not fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. And they fall out of repentance when they forget God's love for them. And when you forget God's love for you, you stop reflecting God's love to them. I'm just going to share with you right now, you cannot continue in your marriage if you're giving all you can give without getting anything from the Lord. Have a quiet time with God. Spend some time in prayer. Be in God's Word. Be in group together. Have other Christians around you. Pray together as a couple. Think of the things of God as a couple. Put your minds on things above, not on things of this world. And that'll help your marriage. Let me just say one little thing before we end. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Some of you say, you know, my, my, me and my wife, we're a thousand miles apart. There's no hope. Yes, there's hope. It just starts with you taking a step. And that step is not necessarily towards him or her. That step is ultimately towards God. If you take that step towards God and he gives you the strength you need, that step that you take towards God is ultimately going to be towards your spouse. And here's the deal. If you run to God, it doesn't necessarily mean that your spouse is going to run to you. But it does mean that you're going to be where you need to be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me end with this. And all God's people said amen. If you've been divorced or if you're going through a divorce, please hear what I'm about to say. God hates divorce, but he loves you more. God hates divorce, but he loves you more. There's an Old Testament story. It's found in the book of Hosea. And God told this prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now let me just give you some advice. Never marry anyone named Gomer. <laughs> unless God tells you to do so. Okay? As soon as they got married... She cheated on Hosea repeatedly. She was the poster child for sexual immorality. She had multiple children, one child for sure 
is a child that Hosea raised that was not his kid. As a matter of fact, Hosea named the kid not mine. If you imagine, not mine, come here. <laughs> Eventually, Gomer leaves Hosea to live with another man who then eventually sold her into slavery. She is on the auction block. God tells Hosea, you go and you pursue that woman and whatever it takes, you pay it to get her out of slavery and to bring her home and to love her because you married her. Now that's a crazy story. And sometimes as you read that story, as I've read that story, you feel sorry. I feel sorry for Hosea. Don't you feel sorry for Hosea? And you begin to wonder, why is this story in the Bible? Now, here's a question. Is this story teaching us that if our spouse cheats on us, that we should not divorce them, but keep pursuing and loving them until they come back? You can do what you want to with that. But I'll tell you what. Often when we read the Bible, we have things backwards. When we read the Bible, we often see ourselves as the hero. Like when we read David and Goliath, we see ourselves as David. When, when we read uh, other stories, we, we see ourselves as the hero. We never see ourselves as the villain. Well, the story of Hosea is a picture of God's love for you. Hosea is a picture of Jesus. And Gomer is a picture of us. And I want to be very honest with you. I have cheated on Jesus a thousand times. And yet he has never given up on me. I have ran from him many times and he's never divorced me. I have left him and forsook other gods and he's never abandoned me and he's never stopped pursuing me time after time after time. Listen, I'm not telling you this morning that if you've been cheated on or if you've been abused or if you've been abandoned, you need to stay together. But here's what I am telling you. I'm saying that if you want to stay married to another sinner, you have to be reminded of how much Jesus loves you. And you have to lean on him to give you the strength to love the stranger. Because the truth is, his love never fails. It never gives up. And it never runs out. Ours does. I'll be honest with you, ours does. If you want the strength to love the way he loves, you've got to first know that he loves you. And you've got to lean on his strength. And the only way you're ever going to do that is you have to have a relationship with Him. You have to know that He is your Savior and your Lord. You have to have put your faith and trust in Him. And so this morning, online or in the room, I implore you today, give your life to Jesus. Trust in Him. We want to come alongside of you. We would love to help you in this journey. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, God, what I couldn't say, what I didn't know, God, let your Holy Spirit do Lord, I, I, I don't understand the pain that many have gone through in divorce. But God, I know that you love us and that your love covers a multitude of sins and that God, that it is not your will, it's not your best for us to be divorced. But God, I pray that you give us the strength to live for you, to love the stranger that we're, live, that we're married to and to give us the strength that we can to love them as Christ loves us. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray for anyone in this room or watching online that doesn't have a relationship with you, that today they would turn from their sins and they would turn to you in faith. God, I pray that you would make them completely 
desperate until they find their rest in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take the next step, visit us online at centralsanford.org.